On this fourth Sunday of Advent, we continue our series, Making Room for the Holy, with a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, a familiar story of those visitors bringing gifts to Jesus, but something else is going on between two kingdoms. Listen for what God might be saying to us. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. What do you want for Christmas? What's on your wish list? That was the question my wife posed to me a few weeks ago on behalf of our kids and grandkids. I have plenty of stuff, but that's never stopped me in the past, and so I quickly jotted down new bow tie, some colored socks, some books I've been wanting to read. What do you want for Christmas? You may have figured this out. The tradition of exchanging presents is traced back to this story when these visitors from the east bring gifts to the baby Jesus. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, although I have no idea what he's going to do with those things. And I think Monty Python asked that years ago. It's a largely misunderstood story. You, you know the, the, the quaint version, but for instance, some traditions call him kings, but there's no indication of that. Even our own translations that we read from today call them wise men, and that's probably not a good translation either. The, the Greek word you know, magi, and if you had to translate it, maybe astrologers would be close. We've assumed over the years that there were three just because there were three gifts, but all we really know is it was two or more. But here's the biggest kicker of all. Jesus was likely almost two by the time they arrived, which is why when Herod slaughters the kids, he starts with those two and under, and and when they enter, they don't go into a manger scene. It's a house. That explains why so many years ago when our kids were little and we put the nativity set up on the mantle, I would take those three visitors and I would move them to the other end. And if anyone asked, I'd say, they're on their way. 
Just give them a couple years. They'll get there. I tried that this year with the grandkids, and they were not having it. They didn't care if Papa's a Bible scholar or not. Papa, they go at the nativity. And so I gave up because, I mean, what's the harm? It's a faulty nativity set, but what's the harm? Call them kings. What's the harm? It's really harmless. It really is. But the story itself is full of harm. Herod figures out that the Magi were wise in at least one way, and that was they saw through his trick. But when he figures out he's been tricked, he's enraged. And so he has slaughtered the boys in the village of Bethlehem to and under, which in that village, by the way, would have been just a few, but would have touched everyone. Kind of like those small towns in Kentucky affected by the tornadoes. Everybody is touched by it in one way or another. We call this story the slaughter of the innocents. I just finished a novel this week about another slaughter of innocents. Francis Spufford's new novel, Light Perpetual, is set in 1944 World World War II London. Some moms with kids in tow have gone into a Woolworths dime store where they are admiring the new saucepans. During the war effort, you couldn't get anything like this, and now there's some saucepans that have arrived. And then the author narrates how quickly the human eye can can catch something out of its periphery. Very fast, but not as fast as a German bomb moves. And in one second, less than one second, they are gone. No more pots or pans or people. And I read this opening and I was just horrified. And that's how it begins. The rest of the novel takes literary license. What if, what if five of the kids who were killed, what if they lived? What would their lives have been like? And so Spufford imagines, you know, music lessons in elementary school, playing soccer, flirting as teenagers. But it's not, it's not all roses. I mean, it's life. And, and so one of the girls, she grows up, she marries that abusive boyfriend who, of all things, is a Nazi skinhead. One of the boys... When he grows up, he dreams of working in the newspaper business, and he, and he does, but there are strikes and unemployment. And there's this other kid, when he grows up, severe mental illness, severe. But he meets this woman who cares for him. She gets him to a doc. He gets some meds. He starts to, he starts to get it together. He, he even goes to church with her, and the hymns just kind of wash over him, and he gives thanks to God. And then near the end, there's hospice for some, memory loss for others, because we all die. But before these characters die, they get to live. Not so for the baby boys in Bethlehem, thanks to Herod. The biblical scholar N.T. Wright says that if you go to Israel on a trip these days, and he's right, you might learn as much about Herod as Jesus. That's because the guy is bigger than life. Herod the Great. 
He's probably best known for his building projects, like his palaces. The one atop Masada is still breathtaking. Or the Hippodrome and the theater that he built at Caesarea. And more than that, he's known for the temple. He was the one who rebuilt the temple bigger and better than ever. Herod is the poster child for every egotistical real estate developer who would ever come along. And insecure. <laughs> he needs to call himself the great. You get it? Herod is so insecure that sometimes he will disguise himself and go into the marketplace just to hear what the commoners are saying. Herod is so insecure that he will kill multiple wives and sons of his, and upon his death, he had ordered that dignitaries in Jerusalem be killed so that there would be widespread mourning. That's Herod. I think Tom Long is right. He says, if you really want to get this story, you need to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Or you can go online and look at it. There is this, this nativity set. And I'm using the term loosely here. It is magnificent. It, it's got everything you would expect. The manger, the shepherds, the animals, even kings, you know. But here's the kicker. It's set among Roman architecture. Roman columns frame it. That's what's going on here. Two kingdoms. And it plays out in at least a couple of ways. The first is in a tale of two cities. Herod sits on the throne in the capital of Jerusalem, along with the elites. Jesus, well, you know, he's born in Bethlehem. It's a suburb, stinky little place. Then and now it's not... You know how some people talk about Raytown and KCK? That's it. That's Bethlehem. Except, except, in the First Testament, Bethlehem is where David is crowned king to replace Saul who has lost it. You get it? That's what's happening here. And it's not just a tale of two cities, it's a tale of two ways of life, of governing, of leading. Herod has excessive taxes, especially burdening the poor so that he can keep on building. But Jesus is described here as a gentle shepherd. And he'll feed people and heal people and care for the vulnerable. I did not know this name until recently. Walter Benjamin was a Jewish philosopher. He lived in France and was fleeing there during the Nazi occupation when he wrote his last book on the concepts of history. Lots of people have picked up on his work since then, but here's one of the things he raises. It's the meaning of the word civilization. Nowadays, everybody uses it, probably dictionaries even use it this way, as progress. You know, arts and architecture, museums, roads and bridges, civilization. But as he points out, and some scholars sense, that's not at all what the word means. The word just comes from the Latin for city. Nothing implied about progress, but what Benjamin says is that what cities bring with them is not just progress, but violence. Barbarism is the term he uses. Because when you get people living close together, it's going to happen. 
And the Bible bears it out. I mean, one of the first stories in the Bible is when they leave paradise, the Garden of Eden, paradise. Cain kills his brother Abel, and the very next thing he does is build the first city. And that's what we've been doing ever since, building roads and bridges and barbarism. So you think down through history, the slaughter of the innocents, this isn't the first, it's not the last. You can think about the Holocaust with six million Jews exterminated. You can think back before that to the Congo where 10 million were killed and the world leaders played Monopoly with a map. Or think about our own country where we took Native Americans and put them on a trail of tears in the name of progress because they were not civilized people. When I read this story, and for that matter, when I read any gospel story, I always think, what if we were enacting it as a stage play? Because that's, in a sense, the way it was communicated before they wrote it down. They, they acted it out. In this case, it'd be a Christmas pageant. We have our own little one this coming Friday at 5.30. You know, the shepherd's kids and the angel's kids, they come down and surround the holy family. But if we were doing this scene, who would we be? Sitting with this text and sitting with Spufford's novel, this is what occurred to me. I think we are the residents of Bethlehem, and we survived. I mean, we saw horrors. Those boys were killed, but we survived. And so we have work to do. We, we want to mourn with those who lost loved ones, and we want to promise to care for all who survive, especially those on the margins. And as the curtain comes down on our little production, I think I hear a familiar carol. It's cute, it's quaint, oh little town of Bethlehem, but there are some haunting lines in there. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Maybe the question is not what we want for Christmas, but what God might want for us and from us for Christmas.